Good evening, everyone. I'm broadcasting live. April 25th. Tonight's quote is about anger or it's about people. Or it's about our reactions, our papancha. There's this Buddhist word called papancha. Papancha means uh, making more out of something than it is. It's translated sometimes as diversification like diversifying something simple. Exaggeration, overreaction. Papancha is when we take an object and we interpret it beyond uh, the objective beyond what is truly impartial. So anything beyond just seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing, anything beyond seeing something exactly as it is. It's called papancha. So the Buddha gives five examples. There's a person who is impure indeed. They do they do unwholesome things. Their behavior of body is impure. But Parisuddha Vajji Samacharu. They are pure of verbal conduct. So their speech is pure, but their actions are impure. Some people are impure of, of speech, but of pure bodily conduct. So they might speak harshly, but their actions are actually kind and gentle and well thought, well reasoned and mindful. But their speech sometimes gets the better of them and they say things that uh, are unpleasant. Some people are impure in speech and impure in action. So they do evil things and they say bad things. But then there are some, but that person, wait, let's look at the English because 
the third person, their body and verbal behavior are impure, but from time to time their mind is pure. From time to time, kalena kalang, labaticca kalena kalang jetaso viwarang jetaso pasadang. They have a, a quiet mind sometimes. Even though they do bad things and they say bad things, from time to time they uh, are clear-minded. We're both pure, we're both impure. Right. A fourth type of person, their bodily behavior and verbal behavior impure, and their mind is never uh, their mind is never pure. And the fifth type of person, their bodily behavior and verbal behavior are pure, and their mind, at least from time to time, becomes pure becomes placid, which is an interesting. And commentary says it's, uh, it's from time to time they have faith in good things and so on. The Buddha, uh, sorry, this is Sariputta actually, this isn't the Buddha, this isn't Buddha Vatsana, this is Sariputta. And he says, uh, he says, for each of these five people, one should remove resentment. So it's interesting to, to think about this, because even the fifth type of person, a person whose bodily behavior and verbal behavior are pure, and their mind is uh, at least occasionally pure, so sometimes they still have defilements, but they're able to suppress them. They're able to um, free themselves from them, and they don't. It doesn't spill over into their body and their actions and their speech. But even such a person is subject to resentment, and so I think that's what's um, most interesting about this quote: is it's not just about ways of, because then it goes on to how to give examples of how we should overcome this resentment and drive it out. Patiwineti. But uh, I think more also interesting is the idea of, um, as I said, our reactions to things and our overreactions to things. So how we relate to other people specifically here. We get angry even, even at people who don't deserve our anger. We get angry at people who ostensibly deserve it, who most people would agree deserve anger. And you could say the same goes with, with greed. We want things that are worth wanting and we want things that are not worth wanting conventionally speaking 
but the 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 interesting thing about this is that it turns out our our desire and our aversion is not related to the is not dependent upon the nature of the object so it's not solely because something it's not at all actually because something is bad that we get angry about it it's not because something is good that we get greedy about it because it turns out we want things that are not worth wanting and we dislike things that are not worth disliking we get angry at people who are pure and Devadatta is a good example Devadatta um, was the Buddha's cousin and he got very angry at the Buddha uh, Supa Buddha very angry at the Buddha Supa Buddha was his stepfather and no, his father-in-law. Sorry, not still. When he had a when when he was a, when the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva got married, and her father was quite angry when he left home, and so he stood in. The Buddha was going for alms, and and Super Buddha came and stood in his way. He was very angry. Is one of the five people for whom the earth opened up and swallowed him whole and dragged him down to hell. Apparently that's a thing. If you do something evil enough, the earth opens up and swallows you whole. Super Buddha is one of the people. Devadatta was another. But to the Buddha, you know, so there was no reason. There was he had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing worthy of resentment. He 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 had no. It's interesting. It's an interesting thing to say because sometimes people have done something wrong, but they are pure. There's the case where someone has done something worth resenting, worth hating. I mean, conventionally, anyway. Obviously, we would argue that nothing is worth hating. but for other reasons. Um, but it's interesting because it, 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 it has nothing to do with the person. There is the case of Angulimala. Angulimala killed many people. And then when he went for alms, he was beaten. He was attacked. But he was an arahant. Uh, he was not an arahant, but he was pure anyway. He was trying to do the right thing. I don't think he was an arahant at that time. I can't remember. Maybe he already was an arahant. Hmm. But he was pure. And yet people still attacked him. And so you might argue, well, he did bad things, and so that's why people are angry. But that's interesting. To it, it's um, useful, and it's interesting how the how Sariputta phrases this. I mean, insofar as we can consider the difference between what people have done and who they are, because it affects our ability to let go of of resentment. You know, if we hold on to the past. It turns out to be kind of silly when you think about 
the the justification. You think about someone's past deeds as a justification for hating them. Someone has done something terrible, and then they 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 change their way. You know, often we want people to regret what they've done, but I'm not even sure that's necessary. If a person realizes you know, what that, the bad things that they've done and that it was bad, and they change their ways and they decide not to do that again, I don't think it's necessary to feel bad about what you've done, feel sad, feel upset, or, you know, Oh, I was such a terrible person. But it's definitely necessary to, you know, if someone has changed their ways. So the, the point of all this, the idea is that we resent for reasons that turn out to be uh, unhelpful. And so Sariputta offers these ways, these sort of conventional ways by which we can look at these people and remind ourselves about their qualities of mind. So if someone is, is uh, if someone is impure of body but pure of, of speech, you should consider them like a rag. If you find a, like monks when, in olden days, and even today, today to some extent, they'll find cast off cloth. And sometimes part of it would be rotten. And well, you should, just because part of the cloth is rotten doesn't mean you should throw the whole cloth away. So instead you tear off the part that's rotten. Throw that away and keep the part that's good. And so that's how you should look at a person uh, whose bodily behavior is bad, but whose speech is good, who speaks kindly, and who who says good things, but maybe someone who is unable to practice them, you know? Someone who talks the talk, but doesn't walk the walk. You can at least think, well, they do good things with their speech. They say things that are kind. They say things that are pleasant, and so on even though they can't help themselves with their, with their actions. So the idea is to, um, I, you could say focus on the good, right? Focus on the, the positive, which is an interesting strategy because to some extent you don't want to ignore the bad. I mean, at least in ourselves. But in others, it, it, it seems to be more useful to focus on the good you know, because that's what we want to gravitate towards. We can't fix samsara, we can't fix the world. But if we focus on what's good in people, you know, and just remove ourselves from what is bad. So when people do bad things or say bad things, if we keep our distance, not get involved, not, you know, try and change them or try and convince them that it's wrong. But we focus on the good. And that's what, what appears to me to be most beneficial. When bad things happen, try and remove yourself. 
keep your work with the good. Don't uh, involve yourself with people's bad deeds because you, know, you get caught up in 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 the world if if you don't. So we were talking about social social activism and bringing about peace and so on. You focus on the peace. Don't get angry or upset about the bad. There's other ways resentment comes, right? You just focus on the good. That's clearly what Sariputta is saying. If a person's verbal behavior is impure, but bodily behavior is, is pure. It's like a, a pool of water, he says, covered with algae and water plants, covered with muck, covered with scum, you know? And you're you're thirsty, so you want to drink from this pool, but it's got this this stuff on top that's kind of gross. Well, what do you do? You put your hands in the water and you part you part the uh, uh, algae and water and drink drink from the water itself. So you go, you see, you penetrate through their their speech. Someone might might be harsh of speech. Sometimes we react to people's speech. If someone speaks not uh, eloquently, not well, maybe they use harsh words. There was this monk in Thailand who was very well known for using uh, actually what turned out to be just old school words, but they become insult insulting terms. When you address someone in Thailand as, as uh, mung, uh, mung is, is a way of saying you, but it's a very coarse way of saying it, or it's become that way. Uh, and uh, and so he was kind of an embarrassment to the other to the monks, and he was actually quite famous. But he had this bad habit of calling himself gu and calling other people mung, which which. Uh, <laughs> sounds quite Im quite improper and one time the king I think came or something and they said oh uh, venerable sir you please you know, uh, just don't talk you know you just just be, be be quiet and don't say you know we, we're afraid that you're going to say these these things and so you know just be quiet when the king comes and this I think it was the king. And uh, king comes, or, or the maybe it's the supreme patriarch. I can't remember. Some big person comes and notices that the old monk is not talking, and he says, "Hey, Lumha, what's what's the matter?" And he doesn't say anything. What's what's wrong? What's wrong? And suddenly he bursts out and he says, "Mung won't let good talk." <laughs> anyway. Maybe it was fun, more funny in the time. But, uh, sometimes people's speech, their manner of speaking gets to us. I've had that happen to me where I'm using the wrong words as, as a teacher. And I've had people you know, say, you, you can't just say that. You have to be more tactful. And sometimes some people are really bad at this. Their speech is... Mm, they say the wrong things. 
you know, maybe they, they, they express bigotry. This happens a lot. People say things that are, are, are hurtful. You know, because speech is, speech is tricky. It's easy to say something you don't mean, right? But it's also easy to take some speech that someone really didn't mean and assume that they meant it. Had that happen where you say something and someone just takes it to heart and you didn't realize that they were going to take it so so poorly, you know, take it so hard. So we shouldn't do this. When so, someone's speech, they say, in Thai they say, uh, if you hear something at the ear, keep it at the ear. Don't let it get to your heart. Whatever you hear, keep it at the ear. Don't let it get to you. you know, like, like look at it for what it is, see it objectively. Because behind that there may be a person who doesn't really believe that, doesn't really believe what they're saying, doesn't really follow that, that has purity. Anyway, so that's like the water. And then if a person is both impure in speech and body, well, then you you look at their mind because sometimes their mind is pure. Hmm. So this is in this, this is like a, a mud puddle. If you if you find a, a mud puddle, if you know anything about mud puddles, when I grew up, there were lots of mud puddles in our driveway. We lived in the forest and we had a long driveway and it had potholes in it. And so we always had mud puddles. If you leave it alone, after some time it becomes pure on the top. But you can't drink from it. If you can't put your hands in it and, and, and take the water out because you'll stir up the mud on the bottom. This is like a person whose mind can be pure but their action and speech is, is not. So I think the implication is that for the most part they do their 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 minds are corrupt. It leads them to do they do bad things and they say bad things. But uh, if you're kind to them, you know, and if you uh, if you are are soft on them, then they have the potential to 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 have a pure mind, the potential to do and say good things as well. And so he said, so, so with this mud puddle, what you do is you bend down and you slurp it up like a cow. Just put your mouth in it and you can actually take the pure water. So this is how you deal with people. You think of people like, well, if you, and he says, and then you depart. So the idea is, well, don't, don't hang around too much. Don't, uh, don't get, don't, don't make, don't stir them up. Because their mind can be pure, let leave them leave them to be pure. Don't get caught up in the bad things. And the fourth type of person it doesn't even have purity of mind. He said, this sort of person, you should think of them as a traveler who 
is gravely ill and has left their village to try and find a doctor maybe in another village but it was too far away and so they're so far away from any help and they have no medicine they have no opportunity to to meet with anyone who can help them you see such a person what would you do you would be compassionate towards them you would have sympathy you would have concern for them and you would think oh may they find suitable food and medicine and someone to help them because if they don't they will encounter calamity and disaster right here if they don't they will be in big trouble they will die May they not, may not this person meet with, huh, he translates that's wrong. It's, uh, if they, it's, uh, may they not. Why, why should we think that? Oh yeah, no, he does translate. Let not this man encounter calamity and disaster right here. So we should pity people who are totally evil. They think, wow, if this guy doesn't get some help, like a sick person wandering along the highway, with no one to guide them, lost in the woods. And the fifth type of person who's pure in body, speech, and mind should think of them as a clear, sweet, cool, a pool pond with clear, sweet, cool water, clean, with smooth banks, and so on. You should think of how great they are, because even such a person can, can uh, arouse resentment in us. We can be angry in such a person, towards such a person. Sariputta had monks angry at him for, for silly reasons. It's easy for us to get angry. If we have, it's like fire. Fire can easily spread if we're not careful. If we have the fire inside us, it will burn. It can burn us, it can burn others. But... Um, So the, the, the sutta is, is mainly about the sort of conventional ways of dealing with our problems. And this is somewhat important. It's kind of like why we practice loving-kindness meditation, why we practice mindfulness of death. I mean, these are not meditations that lead directly to, to insight about impermanent suffering and non-self. They're not technically what leads us to nibbana. But they're very supportive, and there's lots of things that are supportive of our practice. A lot, the Buddha was often talking about anger, because especially because when you're living in a monastic community or in a meditation community, meditative community, over time tempers flare. You know, being cooped up, not having the opportunity to go out and engage in your uh, addictions and desires, uh, day in and day out, having to stay put. 
eating food that you haven't chosen to eat, eating whatever is given, you know, sleeping on the floor. It's easy to get irritable. So anger was a big one that the Buddha was often talking about. But I think uh, it's quite interesting, but I think also quite interesting is to to address this idea of how our reactions don't uh, don't have anything to do with the object. There's no reason to like something or dislike something. This is very hard for us to understand because we think that pain is you know, worth disliking, pleasure is worth liking. It's why we call it, you know, it's it's some, somehow intrinsic, but it's not. There's nothing intrinsically desirable about pleasure, nothing intrinsically undesirable about pain. There are in fact none of them worth desiring or, or uh, resenting. And you can see that with, with this is an ex it gives an example of this, that you can hate someone who's pure, who's perfectly pure. You can hate the Buddha, it's possible. I mean, we know that, it's not a, not, it's not a deep truth, it's just kind of but what's deep is that it goes, it penetrates to everything. Turns out that our likes and dislikes don't have any rational cause to them. Not only do they not have any benefit, which is also very important, but they don't have any, they don't have any relationship. There's nothing about pain that uh, is intrinsically bad. It's, it's kind of interesting to think about why we dislike pain. From a Buddhist perspective, because from a Buddhist perspective, we've we've uh, latched onto this body from from conception, watching it grow, growing with it, you know, as a part of ourselves, seeing it as us, as me, as I. And so, pain kind of develops as this this worrying uh, phenomenon, experience that threatens that. You know, pain is. Pain threatens the stability and the cohesion of our self, you know, what we've come to identify as I. As an example, you know, pleasure uh, is associated with, with the health and the well-being. You know, when you get good food, you feel pleasure. When, when you feel strong, you feel healthy, you know. And so we develop these, these, I mean, it's part of how we develop our attachment to pleasure and our aversion to pain is because of how attached we are to this body, how we attached we are to experiences and how we become attached to everything in the world around us. But we do that to ourselves, we do that on our own. And they're just habits, they're, they're um, conditioned behavior that you can unlearn, that you can change. I was having an interesting conversation a week or so ago. We were speculating on whether a person who is homosexual can become straight because Christians claim, some Christians claim that that's possible and that's what they should do. So we were saying, well, I think we both agreed that he's not Buddhist, but he's, a, he's in my philosophy class and so no, he isn't. He's in my Latin class, but he's he's in philosophy, I think. He's a philosopher, and uh, he was. He, he, we we agreed that it's probably possible. I mean, actually, I don't know. It could be genetically wired or something, homosexuality, heterosexuality. But 
Um, you know, we would argue it has a lot to do with past lives. But whether it then becomes genetically coded or there's a relationship with... Because pleasure also depends on the body. Certain, certain experiences, um, they're, they're interpreted by the brain, and then they can produce certain hormones, right? So it may be that some people are only able to, physically able to give rise to pleasure for uh, the opposite gender. It seems kind of silly to think that, but it may be possible. Anyway, what we were saying is, well, why? You know, what's the difference between heterosexuality and homosexuality? I mean, I guess that's a good example of this, is that um, you know, our judgments of what's good and what's bad, what's proper, what's improper. It turns out to be totally unrelated to reality. I mean, there are certain basic truths, and beyond those, uh, beyond those, it's all conventional. So the basic truths are impermanent suffering and non-self basically but everything we experience turns out to be un unstable unsatisfying and uncontrollable thoroughly not worth our efforts at trying to maintain or fix and so that's what we see in meditation we start to see the way our mind doesn't work according to our desires our body doesn't work the way according to our desires, and the world around us doesn't. And so we use these conventional means of showing ourselves that, and, and, well, and looking at this sutta is about looking at the, looking at ways, or, or looking at things in a way that helps us uh, free ourselves from these attachments and resentments. So there are conventional ways of doing that. If it's very strong anger like this, this is a practical teaching because in the world, it's not just about meditation. For most of us, we we carry grudges, we get angry, and that prevents you from actually. You can't just say meditate on it because we're too we're too caught up in the anger to meditate. So in order to help us meditate, we use these to calm ourselves down. Think about the good in the person. That will calm you down. It will help you become more objective. And then you'll be able to meditate on it easier. Okay, so that's um, that's all I have to say about that. That's the Dhamma for this evening. Thank you all for tuning in. anyone has any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Otherwise, we'll call it a night. Two meditators here now. I think you guys saw Michael. And we have... Uh, we have... Uh, shoot, how come I've forgotten your name? Mark. i got Mark. Michael and Mark. Mark, where are you from? Germany. Right, Germany. He came all the way from Germany. Michael's from America. You guys can go. That's all for tonight.
Oh, is Robin here? Robin, you want to come on the Hangout? I mean, I think there's just a link, but... Um... Right, so Robin puts up a link. Uh, so, yeah, it's just if anyone wants to, you can go and click on that link. We're not, we're not, you know, actively seeking donations, but yeah, yeah, this is a passive thing. There's no need for this. This is, if you want to join in, in, in this uh, great deed with us. Hello, Pante. Hi, Robin. Hi, I just linked our campaign that you were talking about last night for anyone that might want to join in our efforts to um, send you to Thailand with some robes for Ajahn Tong. Mm -hmm. So we've got a little campaign put together. I just linked it in YouTube and the meditation site. But um, is this going to be similar to what you did a couple of years ago where? Yeah, not on the big scale, right? Probably not, yes. So. I mean, we're not, yeah, not pushing this. So who knows if we get so many, many people, but uh, yeah, if we get many people, then it will be large scale, as large as it gets. But that was like, uh, that was a lot more. Each robe's $108, is that what we're estimating? I think that's what they were a couple of years ago. I don't so know. Estimate, because 108 is a good number, so it's approximate, maybe a little more. Doesn't really matter. Uh, maybe a little less. No, a little less actually. It turns out because we're getting them from a yeah. There's where we usually get them is quite expensive, or where I would get them. But there are better places to get them, especially in bulk. They're not so expensive. I don't think it's a hundred and eight, but I can't remember now. Uh, anyway, there's shipping and handling and all that. You know. But for people that maybe haven't been watching the last few weeks, Bhante is going to Thailand and Sri Lanka in June. Um, we'll be there between the two countries for the full month of June. And in going to Thailand, he'll be able to uh, see his teacher and a couple people in our meditation group thought it would be nice to have a gift to um, send to Ajahn Tong, you know, kind of on, on all of our behalf. So anyone who's interested, um, there is a link for that. How was your trip to New York, Bhante? Yeah, it was okay. Um, yeah. We had this interesting... Uh, I like to talk, you know? I'm, I've gotten really... <laughs> so we had this, the three, there were three of us, um, Sudaso and Sudaso, and this Aya Yeshe, I think is her name. She's a Mahayana Bhikkhuni. And then myself, and we each had to say a little bit on social, what was it, responsible, responsible social action. Turns out I didn't know this when I when we talked that she runs a, some kind of charity or orphanage or something. She takes care of children in India. I didn't know this. And so they said something quite brief, and I hadn't prepared anything, but um, I just started talking and. 
And then one of the organizers started laughing, and other people started laughing at some of the things I was saying, because I was saying, you know, usually a lot of what I say here is just that, um, you know, on the ostensibly social activism is, is useless, because, you know, the world is, humanity is doomed, or the, the earth is going to burn to a crisp. I mean, I didn't realize that this wasn't, wasn't you know, something that all Buddhists kind of, kind of uh, you know, considered. And, and they one woman misinterpreted it. She, she interpreted that as being my view, that I think it's useless. But she wasn't really listening to me because I said that's, you know, we have to address that because arguably there's that, um, you know, there's that argument can be made. Uh, and, and as a result, I think we can't uh, focus on goals. We shouldn't focus on, uh, you know, attaining this or that goal or being worried about actual outcomes. The reason why we do good deeds is for the purification of the mind. Um, and so it's our, our minds and the minds of others were the help that we're giving to people it has nothing to do with the outcome in this in this world or the, saving the climate or whatever. It has to do with the, the actual activity of doing good things, cultivating goodness. And I didn't. <laughs> I mean, no one was angry, except this one woman. Really didn't. Really didn't. You know, thought I was wrong. <laughs> but I don't think she really understood what I was saying, because. Uh, uh, and they were saying you know, another person said it sounded nihilistic, and anyway, it was quite uh, an interesting time. So focus on the efforts, not the outcome. That makes yeah. Sense. Yeah, it didn't really go for all that well. Mm -hmm. We were dealing with people whose Buddhism is not exactly like my Buddhism, you know, our Buddhism, I think, as a community. Um, you know, they're much more socially conscious, I think. But they perhaps don't know you as well either. I mean, you're yeah, not a person yeah. who's just, you know, throwing up your hands and, yeah. and just you know, giving up. I mean, you do love It was interesting because the first two, he gave a very Theravada outlook. She gave a very Mahayana outlook. And I gave some kind of totally way out there outlook, it seemed. Um, and I ended up monopolizing, and I think I took far more time than the other two because I had a lot to say, it turned out. I didn't know if I would, but I just started talking. and. So two things. The first was that: as why do we do social work? Why why do we try and help? And my argument was that it was interesting. I'm I'm more sided with doing social work, you know, with helping society. So it, it wasn't actually that I was saying. And I actually argued with Sudaso afterwards because he thought it wasn't important. And I said I don't know. I, I agreed with Ayeshe. I think that uh, you you naturally incline. You know, if you see someone hurting. Um, you you have to suppress the desire to help them. You know, if it's if it's proper to help a person, it takes defilement not to help them. I think I mean, maybe that's going too far, but I would think the natural inclination is to do good thing. And, and then the other part of what I said was how we should do good deeds. I mean, that's very Theravadan. I mean, it's very Buddhist. I think to look at um, your intentions. You, know? you can't just, you know, the saying, don't just do something, sit there. That's what I said to them. I said, if you've ever heard this Buddhist saying, 
Don't just do something, sit there. Why do people say that? Is because we do, we just do something. I have a problem, I'm just going to fix it. How are you going to fix it? Do you know how to fix it? If you don't know how to fix it, don't go and try and fix it, right? If you're not a plumber, don't try and fix the plumbing. If you're not an electrician, don't do the wiring. Uh, electrician, don't do the wiring. And then you get people who are doing good things, but they're doing it in a like a militant, angry way. You know, people get involved in good causes, but they become angry and militant about it. And it's got to work. Yeah, I told my dad this, and he's, I was just talking to him this afternoon, and he said, yeah, I mean, you see that a lot in the environmental movement. He was asking me about my trip in New York, and I mentioned this. I said, uh, yeah, we had this interesting experience. And he said, well, yeah, no, I agree. Because he's very much involved in the environmental movement for many decades. Uh, and uh, and I knew that, you know, following him and, and following in his footsteps, I've seen it as well. People get angry and then they burn out. He said, and then they don't actually get accomplished anything. They 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 they're so passionate about it, about something and they and then they burn out. And then they move on and do something else and they never accomplish their goals. He said. So yeah, that so that was tough. We meditated in the subway uh, in the subway station. So just sat there and meditated. And people just took our pictures. It was really interesting. Everyone wanted to take a picture of the monks meditating. So, which was, you know, I was kind of skeptical about it, but, um, you know, you're, I think you're doing a great thing. This is um, cultivating consciousness to, to, to you know, because what's happening in the subway is there's all these performers, right? There's some guy that's right beside us. Well, I, I suggested we find a sort of an out-of-the-way place so that we wouldn't be in people's way. And they were not so happy about that, but it worked. At first, it just wasn't quite edgy enough, I don't think. But we actually went under this uh, September 11th monument with all the names from all the victims of September 11th. I thought that was quite a neat place to sit and meditate. And people were walking by and they saw. Some people took the pamphlets that we had. Uh, but then they 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 suggested we go right like people the the busiest part right beside it it was a little you know, indent where we could sit so we weren't in their way but we were right beside people walking very busy and right across from us there was a guy with a saxophone or a woman I don't know someone with a saxophone and uh, so it was quite loud so that's what I said it was quite, it was difficult to meditate. That, uh, of course, you know, for our tradition, it's not hard, which is another good thing to show that you know, meditation can happen. Anywhere. But it's kind of a performance, you know. You're you're doing something. Of course, those people are there for money, which we of course weren't. It was kind of the opposite. We had a, a suitcase, which was a common street performer thing to have, but our suitcase said "free, take one," and it was it had pamphlets and then postcards. Still, I do. I think I heard that some people did put money in it. I'm not sure. But uh, I think that was worthwhile. It sounds like fun. The New York subways are awesome. Yeah. And the quality of the street performers is really mm. outstanding sometimes. I, I love the New York subways. Yeah. Okay, so no questions? 
There's the link to the campaign if you want to join us in offering robes. Samir and is in the hangout here. I'm not sure if they have a question. Who? Uh, Samir. Hi, Samir. Maybe doesn't have a mic. And let's call the night. Have a good night, everyone. Good night, Bante. See you tomorrow. Good night.